Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to my weekly From My Mama's Kitchen talk radio show. My guest for this morning is Joanne Bamberger. She is an award-winning writer and the author of Amazon's number one bestseller, Love Her, Love Her Not, The Hillary Paradox. Joanne and I will be discussing about Hillary Clinton's aspiration to become the first woman president in the U.S. history and the 2016 presidential race to the White House. Good morning, Joanne. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me and talk about Secretary Clinton's journey to the White House. By the way, the book is a wonderful read. It is extremely informative. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it and found it interesting. Very, very interesting. It's something that I think we, the average Joe, doesn't know about what is really going on with the various candidates in terms of a personal touch to themselves. So let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Well, that's that's a story. <laughs> but uh, um, I actually uh, grew up on a small family farm in Pennsylvania. And uh, when I was in high school, got very interested in journalism and broadcasting. And my first job, actually while I was still in high school, was covering local school board meetings and town council meetings for the radio station. Mm-hmm. And I got became very interested in broadcasting and journalism through that and uh, started college and continued to work in radio and TV while I was in college and spent about 10 years in broadcasting, both in radio and television. And at a certain point in broadcasting, I I thought, well, did I really want to do that for the rest of my life? I wasn't sure and was trying to think about what really would be a good fit for me. And I decided I wanted to go to law school initially with the idea that I would then go back into journalism and become uh, the first woman legal reporter on mm. national television because there was nobody doing that at the time. Um I got a little bit sidetracked after law school, (laughs) thinking, well, now I have this law degree, maybe I should try practicing law. And uh, so I ended up practicing law for about 15 years before going back into writing and journalism. Mm -hmm. And that coincided with uh, when my husband and I decided to adopt our daughter. And that worked out well because it gave me a chance to continue working, but I could have flexible hours and work from home and and still raise our daughter. So I have been doing the, the freelance writing, online writing, book writing thing since about 2000. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's uh, that takes us up to about now where I've written two books. This book is my second book, Love Her, Love Her, Not the Hillary Paradox. And the first book that I wrote uh, is called Mothers of Intention, How Women and Social Media Are Revolutionizing Politics in America. Mm-hmm. And I, I came to that as I discovered the online world and the world of blogging and saw that women were really starting to write about things in different ways and getting their voices out there online in, in ways that they couldn't through traditional media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so those things were very important to me, and then that sort of led me to to this book project. Fantastic. Growing up, obviously, you started at a very young age with sort of a personal self-leadership ambition in terms of wanting to be the leader and make a difference in the world. Were there life epiphanies that led you to sort of be that leader that you want to be like, hey, I need to champion women's interests? I think the epiphany, and I think it's probably one that many women have had, and especially Mm -hmm. women of my generation uh, growing up, sort of coming of age in the mid to late 70s and early 80s, that you you were being told that you, you, I think women were starting to be told and girls were being told that you can do whatever you want and you can Mm -hmm. have whatever career you want. You don't still have to be just, not just, but 
for a long time, there were careers that were considered women's, quote unquote, women's careers, like being a teacher or being a nurse. And mm-hmm. sort of that 70s, 80s era, I think a lot of us were obviously being told we could do other things, yet we were not seeing those examples. And I was not seeing those examples. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was one thing that really led me to wanting to become a journalist, because at that time, there were very few women journalists, and um, especially on TV. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I thought could be very powerful and help other women decide what they wanted to do. If they saw other women on TV or in radio or in print talking about the important issues of the day, that that would hopefully encourage other people, other women, to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that during the time that you developed the passion for politics, or is it way before then? It was pretty much at the same time. Uh, I came of age, and this will sort of clue everyone into how old I am, but uh, <laughs> I was sort of the, the very geeky teenager who in 1974, instead of going outside and playing and getting fresh air, as my mother wanted me to do, mm-hmm. uh, I sat inside the house and watched the Watergate hearings because mm-hmm. that was very fascinating to me. And so mm-hmm. I've always been interested in politics. And similarly as with writing and journalism, at that time, the absence of women in the mm-hmm. political world. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to really focus on those things and figure out how can we get more women into politics, how can we get more women into journalism, and how can we merge those things. And that led me to major in political science in college, because I really wanted to learn more not just about politics as we see them on TV and not just the two-party system, but really mm-hmm. dig deeper into it. You know, Why do people act the way they do and, and sort right. of that political aspect of it. So I've really always had a passion for it. It also helped that I was exposed to it in high school doing model model UN and model Congress and things like that just made me very interested in how all of it works and how how can people affect change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sadly, I I don't think people think about politics quite in that way anymore as we see you know, on the national level, people just fighting about things and not getting things done. Right. Um, but that was really what started it and uh, have just remained interested in it and following it and trying to participate more in a commentary way as opposed to running for office. You mentioned something about in the 70s and I guess late 70s and early 80s. That's during the time where the entire political scene is going through its infancy of the changing of the guard, so to speak, because if I recall, that's when, for the first time, we have a female vice presidential candidate, Geraldine Ferraro. Exactly. That was, I think, life-changing for a lot of people like myself to finally Mm -hmm. see a woman on a national ticket. Uh, That was a very positive thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the negative thing about it was seeing how she was treated, seeing how she was talked about uh, negatively yeah. uh, in, in the press. But fi- it was amazing to finally see someone at that level and know that, you know, yes, this can happen. I think also thinking at the time that, well, it will not be too long until we see a woman in the White House in her own right. Yeah. And, of course, here we are today, and we have yet to see that. <laughs> What I recall at the same time, I mean, getting away from U.S. politics for a little bit, the thing that came to mind when I think about Hillary Clinton and so forth, it's the Time magazine came out with a cover story and shows this huge aircraft carrier when the Falkland Islands were taken over briefly by Argentina, if you recall, during about the same time. Margaret Thatcher sent the aircraft carrier out there and the magazine cover, of course, at that time was Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. And I thought it was a huge <laughs> right. show of power. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And and I remember that as well. And probably many, yeah. many people who didn't live through it probably remember it through the movie in the last few mm-hmm. years about Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher, and they, and they talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's interesting because that that sort of issue has not yet come up in 2016, for Hillary Clinton about 
you know, a woman and military power, obviously right. it, it will soon. Um, mm-hmm. But but it is good, I think, that we have those examples already, that we know that right. women can be that, that type of leader. Right. Coming back to you, how did your parents play into all this? Were they really politically motivated in a way? So you kind of like grew up in that kind of household, or is this something that you kind of took off on your own? It was it was pretty much my own. I think it baffled my parents that I was that interested. <laughs> and uh, I recall at the time them not being particularly happy that my my college major was going to be something as impractical as political mm-hmm. science. And mm-hmm. why was I not majoring in something that I knew I would be able to find a job when I got out of college? <laughs> um, <laughs> But but they knew that it was something that I was interested in, and I think I was able to convince them that it was okay because I, mm-hmm. I had my sights set really on having a career in journalism, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. that helped them. I was like, all right, she can get a job as a reporter. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I mean, they, they definitely, my family definitely have, they, they still have their certain political views, Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were not a particularly political family in the sense yeah. of uh, th- there, were, there were no big political discussions at the dinner table. I see. As far as you personally, you mentioned just now about adopting a daughter. Mm-hmm. Were there challenges in balancing your professional life and your personal life? Yeah, I think there are always challenges for mm-hmm. anyone once they become a parent. I think, and I think it is difficult for anyone to know what those challenges are until they become a parent. Because it's uh, certainly one thing to either have a job or a career without children and think, you know, you have your your schedule down and you think you know what it's going to be like. And, And I certainly, you know, had certain ideas of how my life would be that we would, you know, Bring our bring our daughter home, and I would be home for a certain number of weeks, and then I would hire a nanny, and then I would go back to work, and it would all just be very smooth. And as anyone who is a parent knows, nothing is ever smooth when you are a working <laughs> parent. So that was, you know, it, it was a challenge. I think it's a challenge for everybody, but I think it is a good challenge in that it gives you a whole new realization about mm. what. Other people have gone through what people, you know, what your parents went through, and I think it gives you a different perspective on certain issues that we as a country think about in terms mm-hmm. of uh, balance in the workplace, being able to leave if you, you know, for a day or a few hours if you have a sick child or an aging parent. So those were I, I thought I had a handle on mm-hmm. how that mm-hmm. was all going to go, and it didn't go anything like I thought it was going to go at all. <laughs> um, I thought that at the time I was uh, working, I, I wasn't practicing law anymore. I was working mm-hmm. as a uh, public affairs official for a national, for one of the governmental agencies. And I thought, well, we will go. I'll come home. I'll take off a few weeks, and then I will go back to work. And it was in the midst of the uh, Bush v. Gore era, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I thought, uh, and then Al Gore will be president, and I will be promoted to the head of public affairs, and Mm -hmm. I will continue that career, and he was not elected president, and I was not promoted, (laughs) and and at that point, it's like, well, how are we going to work this? And that, I, that, at that point, made a very big decision to make a, a huge change in my life and really step off that career path mm-hmm. to go back to pursuing writing and journalism and being able to do that with very, very flexible hours at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been working from home for 15 years, and it's it's actually been quite good. So even though it wasn't what I had anticipated, and I think mm-hmm. many parents, especially women, have that experience where their life is not exactly what they thought it would be after they had children. It's been a very good one. I believe technology contributed a whole lot to that transition process because I think 20 years ago or 30 years ago, women can't be as actively working as they could now because now a lot of work can be done at home. And that includes for men as well because of technology. So I think the entire world, in a way, but certainly in the United States, that's certainly moving towards that direction. So that's fantastic. 
tell us a little bit about the broadside and Pundit Mom. So when I was when I started out freelance writing, uh, and you're right, it's it certainly you know technology is certainly mm-hmm. a lot better today than it was even in 2000 when I started working part time from home. But it was still possible. You had computers, and it was possible to do freelance writing and have freelance assignments from home. Um, so you know, thank goodness for that. But there came a time after a few years where, and it's gotten worse today, where it is very difficult as a, to sort of make a living as a freelancer. And as mm-hmm. more and more of those jobs are sort of done in-house and they're not hiring outside people. And one of those jobs that I had was writing uh, opinion commentary for a no- newspaper that's based out of Washington, which was called something else before, but it is now the Washington Examiner. Mm-hmm. And that job lasted for about a year and a half, and they made some changes internally, and that job went away. And I discovered through that particular writing experience that that was really the kind of writing I loved the most, writing opinion commentary and weaving experiences of real people, of our lives, with commentary on what was going on in the news, things that were going on in politics, uh, some of the writers that I was reading at the time who were you know, obviously higher platform than myself, like Anna Quinlan and Connie Schultz and people like that, were doing similar kinds of writing. And I found that very satisfying and very empowering to be able to get opinions out that weren't being expressed in, in the world. And so mm-hmm. after that job went away, I, I, I was looking for other jobs that were similar, and someone said to me, well, why don't you start a blog and just keep your hand in it until you get another writing job for that kind of writing? And I said, what is a blog? Because I had no idea. It was around Mm -hmm. 2005. It was like a blog. What is that? And I I quickly came to learn about the world of online writing and weblogs, which were in their infancy then. And that was how I started my blog, which I wrote at the time, called Pundit Mom to try to have a place to not only to write myself, but to gather writing from other women writers who were out there doing similar work. Uh, after I wrote Mothers of Intention, which gathered a lot of that writing at, to highlight women who were online writing about how politics and social issues impacted their lives and through that particular lens, I made a decision for a variety of reasons to um, close that down and create the broadside as Mm. a group blog where it wouldn't be so much my writing, but it would also include those of other people to make it more of a magazine experience. And Mm. so that has existed for several years. And I, I think what we try to do there is look at women's lives through personal experiences and incorporate our thoughts on current events. Uh, Right now, there are things about the uh, standoff in Oregon. There are things Mm -hmm. about uh, Hillary Clinton and Angela Merkel. Uh, There are also things just about individuals' lives and Mm -hmm. and how we're navigating those lives. And I think it's a a site that I'm very proud of. We've uh, tripled the readership in the last year. And we're hoping to do that again this year. And I, I think we have a really good readership. So I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I think we highlight a lot of really excellent women's opinion writing there. Fantastic. You have created an opportunity for everyone to express themselves. And that's what it's all about. Sometimes people want to be heard. What you have done is to give everyone the opportunity to do that, the moms. And in this case, they realize that they're not the only one that has such an opinion. That's that's exactly right. And I think the thing that helps get that out and and Mm -hmm. so you get that sort of feeling is social media, which when we, many of us first started blogging, there was no Twitter or Facebook. There was really no way to share that kind of writing other than through emails. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, you often see, well, obviously, that's what people do all the time. We like to share stories. Yeah. We like to share links. And, and that, but I think that's part of what keeps me going on this, is knowing mm-hmm. that there are people out there reading it and saying, this really meant something to me, 
and I, I found it impactful, and I want to share it with my community. Mm-hmm. And and that's it's really rewarding, and it's amazing to read the the writing. There are so many amazing women writers out there who mm-hmm. don't get the attention that they really should, and I'm very happy to be to have a, a small part in helping get that writing out there. The extra caveat to what you just mentioned is also I feel like having the opportunity for the other women, the ones that have not written anything, but having their opinion being expressed by others and having the chance to sort of say, yes, that's right, it is a stress relief for them as well. These are the subtleties that people benefit from having such a wonderful blog to go to. And then there's also the aspect of it, and I find this in myself when I read other people's Mm -hmm. writing too, where you think, I hadn't thought about that from that perspective, where you think you know everything there is to know about your opinion (laughs) or a particular story, and and then someone writes something, and you just have this aha moment, like, wow, you know, and why didn't I think of that before to sort of Mm -hmm. better inform myself. So I I love those moments when I read something and think that is amazing and I had not thought of it in that particular way. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Who were some of your influences in your life? Well, as I mentioned, very early on I was influenced by the the small handful of women uh, journalists uh, one of my big influences at the time when I was a teenager was uh, Jessica Savage, who is, who's no longer alive, but she was mm-hmm. an amazing uh, and one of the first news anchor women mm-hmm. on television. And and as I mentioned, other women writers that I really admire: uh, Anna Quinlan, Connie Schultz, Molly Ivins. People, women writers who had a chance to say something important from different perspectives that I had not read before mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. helped me to think about things in different ways. And then these days, uh, all of the women Supreme Court justices, mm-hmm. uh, and as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said recently, she hopes someday there will be nine women on the Supreme Court. And I would <laughs> love to see that, and they would all influence me if that was mm-hmm. the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, many of the women I read online uh, mm-hmm. there are just you know so many you know too many to mention, but sure. uh it's just always finding amazing women online and in the way that, as you said, with technology twenty years ago, even ten years ago, I probably would not ever have found some of these mm-hmm. great writers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so true. How did love her love her not the Hillary paradox come about? Well, I have always been fascinated with her since she came on the scene uh, back in 1992 when she was first lady and before she was first lady when Bill Clinton was running. But the question that led me to this particular book was that when she ran for president in 2008, there were so many discussions, news stories, things said on television about how she wasn't likable and that people wouldn't vote for her because they didn't like her because of her hair or because of her laugh or because of whatever thing they found to criticize her about Mm -hmm. and criticized her about those things in a way that male candidates are virtually never criticized on. They're just things that are never brought up. And it really made me wonder why. And I sort of let it drop, and then obviously when she started again to run, uh, this time those stories started coming up again. And so I really wanted to explore that question Mm -hmm. and thinking that I would just write some articles about it. And as I was doing some research, I came across research and polling that had been done on these issues and academic articles that had been written about how the media covered Hillary. And it just made me wonder why. Why do we have these complicated, conflicting feelings about her in a way that we don't seem to with any other candidate, male or female? We rarely hear or read news articles about the women senators talking Mm -hmm. about, 
you know, are they likable? Did they gain weight? Did they lose weight? What are they wearing? All those sort of odd things that we seem to discuss about Hillary Clinton. And I thought a good way to really explore that would be to get women of all different ages, backgrounds, religions, you know, every sort of diversity you can imagine and ask mm-hmm. them, you know, sort of how do you, how do you feel about Hillary Clinton and why? And ask them to write about it to try to explore it that way. And that's how I came up with the essays for this book. And I have to say, going into it, I had a list of topics that I thought that people would write about. And I Mm -hmm. thought I knew what people would say. And I was totally surprised by some of the things that were written in the book and and still am. And I'm very interested that I I thought that the book would fall into three distinct categories, the the Mm -hmm. writers who loved her, the writers who hated her, and the writers who were in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it did not pan out that way at all. There are obviously some essays in the book that are totally pro-Hillary, but everyone, almost all of the essays are so nuanced. They're like, well, I like this about her, but I don't like that. But there's mm-hmm. this other candidate, but I realize maybe that's not the candidate for now. And I thought that was the most interesting aspect of the book, that even the people who probably will not vote for Hillary Clinton still had interestingly positive things to say about her, and that the people who are definitely going to vote for her have many qualms about Mm -hmm. certain either things in her background or positions that she's taken. And that sort of in the midst of the project, that was the thing that excited me the most. And Mm -hmm. I realized that hopefully the other people reading it would have the same reaction, that you might pick up the book and say, oh, well, you know, I can guess what people are going to say, and then read it and think, this this is not what I thought they would say at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What I got from the book is the fact that these are the people that have obviously observed her, some people that have known her for years. But what I got from a layman perspective, I guess, from the average Joe, is that these are the internal snapshots, a wonderful summary of situations happen and how does Hillary conduct herself or how does other people view her. And especially at that time when you were talking about back in 2008 is not as pronounced as it is right now because now when you talk about the political arena, it's so divisive. People tend to accentuate all the negative things. I say this respectfully, he who is without sin cast the first stone kind of thing. <laughs> right, know? exactly. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so we're away from the facts. We're talking about symptoms. We're not talking about the core of the situation. And that's what I really like about the book. Right. I, I think, we sadly, we, we live in a time where much of what we get as coverage is really what what does anyone think on any given day? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if people are going to be making decisions on candidates based not only on their their positions, their views, the you know, things that they've done in the past professionally, then then it's it's worthwhile to take those opinions and those feelings and explore them and find out, well why? Why is it that you um aren't concerned anymore that mm-hmm. her husband cheated on her, or why are you, or yeah. why is you know, the fact that her clothing is a certain way, what does that, it's not just a fashion thing, is that, that that's actually something that can be explored from a broader societal question of yeah. why do we judge women on, on what they wear. So I, mm-hmm. I think that we, for better or worse, we live in a time where what passes for political discussion is very different than even 8, 10, 15 years ago. So if that's the case, then let's find a, an entertaining way to explore you know, how it is we're deciding mm-hmm. whether to vote for her or for anyone else. You mentioned about the contributors and so forth. They are a wonderful collection of individuals and 
these uh, individuals that you know, or are these the ones that you just decide to pull them in because you feel like they may have something interesting to say? A combination of both. Some mm-hmm. some of the women are people that I know personally. I, I've started with the idea of I, I wanted a completely diverse group of people, as diverse as I could make it, you know, and I, I succeeded on some levels and Sadly, you know, not as much as I wanted because there were a number of people who initially said yes and then had to drop out. And mm-hmm. but I but I tried to look for people who I knew were really good writers, really good thinkers, and people who paid attention to mm-hmm. what goes on in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I started from there. And some of them are women who write at the broadside, so I knew that there were some of those women that I really wanted to involve in the project. But there were other people who I did not know that I really wanted to reach out to and make a part of the project. And then there were some where I had a passing acquaintance with them online, but mm-hmm. followed them and knew what their writing was and knew that they would have interesting things to say. And so started with a list of potential writers and you know we went back and forth over here's my list of ideas do any of these mm-hmm. do you have an opinion on any of these or you know do you have something that in particular that you want to explore and so many people came back with ideas that I would never have thought of and I thought were particularly thought provoking um people mm-hmm. you know Gen X one of the Gen X writers talking about right. Uh, uh, how Hillary is a crone of her own, and mm-hmm. you know, looking at her, so the wisdom of crones in history and how that applies to <laughs> Hillary. It's like not something I would ever have thought of, but it's but it's a really interesting look at incorporating her own personal experiences of life into how she views Hillary through that lens. So that's how I, I went about choosing the writers. Um, I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure I had people from all current generations. So we've got, you know, some Gen Y writers. We have some women who are retired. I wanted to make sure that I covered, you know, every sort of diversity that you could think of and hoped Mm -hmm. to have some serious, thoughtful essays and some funny essays. And I I think that that's what I was able to put together in the end. And I'm very Mm -hmm. grateful for this group of writers who you know, worked really hard on a very long editing process and publishing process. But I think that I was able to put together a really unique group of women to help inform us going forward. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Why is the book a must-read for everyone? I I think it's a must-read. Uh, sort of touched on this before because mm-hmm. there are things in the book and this book that I have not read anywhere else in terms mm-hmm. of opinions. Um, one, for example, um, one of the women uh, she runs the uh, Motherload column at New York Times, mm-hmm. and she wrote a really powerful essay about how she thinks if Hillary does focus on the quote-unquote women's agenda and family agenda issues that that could be her ticket to the White House. And most of what you read mm-hmm. and hear on TV and right now is about, oh, she's playing the woman card, and that's a bad thing. Right. And why should we even think about gender? And so many of the writers have taken, it's like, all right, I'll take that topic, but then have flipped it to try to think about the other side of it. And that's not something that I think you get in most online spaces or in the news, because I think we we live in a time where everything is so 24-7 driven that there's little time to come up with unique, thoughtful views, because things are always, oh, we need more news. We need, we've got to crank it. We've got to get out the next story. We have to keep <laughs> moving. And these writers were really able to take their time and think about things in unique ways that will make people think differently not only about Hillary Clinton, but about women candidates in general. Mm -hmm. And I I think a lot of what they have to say and write, and hopefully a lot of what I have to say and write in the book, uh, will make people think about that. For for example, the, the whole idea that we're conflicted about her 
mm-hmm. is sort of funny given the fact that they just announced that she was voted for the 20th time the most <laughs> admired woman in the world. Right. So, so that's what I think that these essays will bring to the table to hopefully yeah. encourage us. Someone, someone said, I really wish someone would write a book like this about every presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. And and I, I thought that was a good thing because mm-hmm. people can it might change their minds. It might not, but I but I think some people might have their minds changed if they read this book. For better or worse, it doesn't matter. But it certainly gives them an inside information about the candidate, and that's what I like about the book. Right, exactly. You know, things that like uh, the the essay written by the woman who actually lives in Chappaqua, which mm-hmm. is where the Clintons have their private home. And recently we had a uh, a book event at the Chappaqua Library, and so we were there, and, and I was visiting her home, and I was talking with her daughter, and she said, yes, I actually can see their backyard from my house. So they, they really are neighbors. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not, you know, they, they don't run into each other all the time, but having the perspective of someone who sort of lives in the same community you know whether they see them every day or not gives you a very interesting perspective on who they are as real people and who she is as a real person and and i think that those are perspectives that you're not going to get anyplace else right right so true well i have selected several stories from the book as talking points for this morning so Please give us a short rundown of these stories. And let's start off with the very first one. It's actually a story by you. I don't need Hillary Clinton to be perfect. That's sort of been my thing for a long time. And I think a lot of the coverage about Hillary Clinton starts from the premise that she she should be perfect and that that's where so much of the criticism comes from. And I wanted to explore that. And as I I did it, it occurred to me, and and I think this is true, that that is a problem for so many women today. And and I put myself in that category because Mm -hmm. I think I have my moments when I am not happy that I am not perfect in every way, in terms personally and professionally. But I think we live in a culture today where the idea is cultivated that if you are not constantly a woman striving to be perfect, whatever, however you interpret that, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. there's something wrong with you. And I think we have projected that onto Hillary Clinton, and I fear that that will be also projected onto other women candidates. So I wanted to explore that and really sort of bring us back to the idea that we, we never ask any male candidate to be perfect, and mm-hmm. we don't ask how they balance their lives and we don't ask, you know, who's at home taking care of the children while you're out campaigning. And and I wanted to explore that so that we can maybe take a step back and say, you know, okay, she I don't need her to be perfect. I don't need her to be everything in every category if she represents the views that mm-hmm. that I like and would make me want to vote for her. So true. The next story I selected is by Mary Curtis. She's with the Washington Post and The Root. And her essay is, How Can Hillary Be Herself When She's a Stand-In? Which I thought was really an interesting idea, somewhat related to mm-hmm. my essay. But really, her, her idea was, you know, we, we look at her in a particular way and why do we always ask about whether she's authentic or not authentic and explores the question of whether it's because of the era in which Hillary was born. And she says, so many people expect so much of Clinton because she had the fortune or misfortune of being born in October 1947, a prototypical baby boomer, mm-hmm. and that we look at her and project so many different things on her, uh, she says, from race to class to gender to motherhood to grandmotherhood, that we pro- end up projecting ourselves onto her. And when she doesn't live up to whatever our projections are of her in any particular role, then we find fault with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in a way that you know we don't do with men. You know, no no one is, right. for example, asking. You know, well. You know, what about Donald Trump and his three marriages? Or what right. about, 
you know, uh, other men's issues. You know, when was he home yeah. for dinner with his children? So right. I, I think it's interesting that she explored that and, and also how uh, how Bill played into the race in 2008 and whether that's going to be a good or bad thing in 2016. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So true. The next essay is by Jennifer Hall Lee, and hers is Hillary Clinton's Change My Life. That's this is one of probably one of the most uh, one of the essays that really is most totally one hundred percent behind Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and it really stems from the it really takes a look at being a woman going from a position of really not ever having had any political involvement to being a person who totally wants to be involved and active and campaign for her based on the media sexism that she experienced in Mm -hmm. 2008. And it it really explores how it was, she uses the metaphor of a a dimmer switch and how her Mm -hmm. realization of certain things, you know, it wasn't a aha moment where now I, I knew nothing about politics and now I must support a politician. It was a very slow turning up of noticing how, people would criticize her and talk about her in ways that you'd never talk about a male candidate, not referring to her by her actual titles, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. making very sexist comments about her, and seeing how that negatively impacts pretty much any woman candidate and, uh, and, and sort of sharing those insights with her daughter and saying, you know, Hillary's presence and words were a powerful message to girls and women, and that is why she didn't quit, that she she had really admired the fact that there were people saying, well, why doesn't she get out of the race at this point or that point, yeah. um, and really admiring that in her and taking that, moving that forward to this place, to this, this campaign. I chose this story because I like what Jennifer said something about in her own situation where she was actually invited to go to Pakistan. And yes. a statement I was going to make is, and I say this respectfully again to all the other world leaders out there, if America as a whole, as we think that we are the number one country in the world, we are the world leader, the expectations in there, whether we ask for it or it's expected of us to lead, well, guess what? whoever runs for the presidency of the United States is actually running for the presidency of the world. And so in this situation, what Jennifer mentioned about the fact that having a woman leader of the world certainly shed a lot of wonderful light to all the other women in countries where women are currently oppressed. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was really wonderful how she you know, wove that particular experience into her essay and what she shared about talking with uh, the women in Pakistan about you know, how they hope their country will be run and looking to other women leaders of the world. And that's a thing I think we ha- don't have very many people thinking about in that way. Right. That right. Are, are other countries, especially women in other countries, looking at us saying, how can you understand and be the global leader if you don't have someone who can truly understand what our issues are about? Right. So true. The next essay is Can Hillary Clinton Count on the Generation Y Vote by Jolie Hussinger? So this, obviously, she's a Gen Y voter, and she's Mm -hmm. uh, just out of veterinarian school, but talks very much about how it's important for her, even as a Gen Y voter, that Hillary advocates for the issues that she that are important to her, especially education funding. And I and I found this one really interesting because obviously we know that many news reports talk about that the Gen Y voters are all for um, Bernie Sanders and mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they don't really care about gender and we should be gender blind. So I thought it was really important to have the voice of uh, someone from Generation Y who really understands and, and looks at the fact that we need someone who will advocate for 
for certain things like student loan forgiveness and making sure that education budgets aren't cut. And she said she really believes that she speaks for her colleagues when she says that, quote, it's time to to shake things up, that it's up mm. to her generation to say we're not going to have the status quo anymore, and it is important to finally have a woman elected. Wonderful. The next story is Hillary Clinton, Every Mother by Linda Lowen. I, I love this essay mm-hmm. because I, you know, it's sort of you get both generations. Uh, Linda yeah. writes from her perspective, and then she interviews her Gen Y daughter at the end uh, because the the um, some of the anecdotes she recounts were written when her daughters were in high school and now they're in college and. The premise being that she's glad she doesn't have to be all things, that she she can be herself and do her career and she can be the mother and she just needs Hillary to be the example of leadership for her daughters. And mm-hmm. we don't really have to talk about whether you know, she was a good mother to Chelsea or a bad mother. Uh, but really the, the thing that I thought was enlightening in this essay was the Q&A with her daughter at the end and how her daughter's views of not only politics, but about uh, sexism and discrimination in the workplace uh, changed. And that now as a a young woman several years out of college and she's had some work experience, realizes that things are not always as black and white as they may seem on certain issues. And that once you're out in, in the real world, in the workplace, that you realize there are many shades of gray that you have to navigate and mm-hmm. and not being particularly happy about having to navigate those issues especially you know workplace discrimination and i i think those those types of perspectives i hope that younger readers you know the people of gen y who read this book will will focus on that you you may think things are a certain way in the workplace and assume that the battles for equal pay or discrimination have been fought and are over but that they really aren't and mm-hmm. that those are those are things to consider when thinking about who do you who do you really want to vote for who's really going to to stand up for what you believe in so true the next essay is embracing the parents agenda for the win by KJ Antonia and she's with the New York Times Right. She runs the motherload column of the New York Times, and we were talking about this one a little bit earlier, um, which I think in 2008, Hillary sort of ran away from those issues, if you will. She didn't want to, and she admits today that, you know, she felt that it was important not to talk about the fact that she was the woman candidate, and was it really good for her to talk about what we consider, quote-unquote, women's issues or family issues? Would that make her seem too soft and and not strong Mm -hmm. enough to be a leader? And that's sort of what I like about KJ's uh, essay, is it takes that and flips it on its head, and and I think Hillary Clinton and her campaign are doing this, where they realize that the voters they need to win are working middle-class women mm-hmm. who need to know that we are a country who's going to work on paid family leave and decent, affordable child care and fair pay. And and I love that she you know, dares to say this this could be the way for Hillary to get into the White House. Forget Forget mm-hmm. the... You know, you must be strong commander-in-chief, which we also need, but you need to also focus and let us know what are you going to do for us as families and push for, you know, paid family leave and things like that. So true. The next essay is, Can the She Clinton be commander-in-chief by Patricia DeGennaro? Mm -hmm. Which is is the flip side of of the KJ essay and also an important one. Uh, I, I like how she starts her essay talking about, you know, first there was, you know, Gina Davis on the TV right. series Commander-in-Chief, and we've seen Alfre Woodard in State of Affairs, and mm-hmm. we've we've seen the, the fictional Commander-in-Chief. We've seen the fictional woman president, and we, we know right. what that looks like, you know, in primetime TV. Uh, and can she, can Hillary sort of take her experience and move us past the fictional and get us into the real? And I, I think really 
does a nice job of talking about her tenure as Secretary of State, which many people are ignoring as they talk about, well, what are Hillary's qualifications really? How do we know she could be the leader of the free world? And and I like how she, you know, very, you know, matter-of-factly but also with some humor talks about, well, she's done all this as Secretary of State and she already has all these relationships, so why in the world would we imagine that just because she's a woman, that she would not be able to to take on that role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And the final essay that I selected is A 12-Step Program of Historic Proportions by Lisa Mass with American Association of University Women. Right. I, I thought this was really interesting because it's also somewhat mm-hmm. humorous, but I right. think there are a lot of lessons that are good takeaways. Um, you know, not that I have any expectation that Hillary Clinton is ever going to read this book, but <laughs> but I am sure I, I am sure some of the points that Lisa has made are things that her her campaign staffers have gone over with her, especially looking at what happened in two thousand eight versus today. And and I, I thought it was interesting that one was suspense is overrated, that she was mm-hmm. uh not particularly happy that it felt to her that Hillary sort of teased us for so long about whether she was going to run or whether she wasn't going to run and and whether that somehow foreshadowed how she would be as as a president. Um, I, I don't think that, but I, I think it's a fair question to ask. And I, I think it's very important for her to, you know, look at some of these these tips and also, some of these can, other than the one number eight, run as a woman, uh, would apply to all the other candidates as well about being genuine yeah. and work hard for every vote. And it also, I think, gives us a, a very a, a nice list of what all the candidates really have to go through and mm-hmm. what they need to think about before they run for president. So true. So who is the real Hillary Clinton? Uh, isn't that a great question? <laughs> I think see, I, I think the real Hillary Clinton is everything that we see of her, of mm-hmm. all of these different aspects. Just as uh, the real Joanne or the real Johnny, you know, mm-hmm. we we are three dimensional people. And I think often we expect people that who we see uh, in the limelight, whether that be politicians or entertainers or whoever. We, we see only part of them, and they're sort of two-dimensional figures to us, and we often forget that they're people just like us and are 3D, and they're not perfect, and they have flaws, and there may be things that we disagree with and things we agree with. So I, I think that goes for Hillary just as much as anybody else. And so I think she is the... You know the policy wonk. She, you know, the, I think she's the hardcore policy wonk, and she's the soft and fuzzy grandmother, and she is the politician who has ambition, and that should be a good thing in women, and she is the person who personal friends say is an amazing friend, mm-hmm. and I think she is all of those things. The people, she's a person who has interesting policy decisions, and yes, she's changed her mind. But we all change our minds on certain things, and you can decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think it's really important for us, especially as we look at women candidates, to finally realize that that's who she is and that's who all candidates are, that they mm-hmm. all have many different things, and we can't expect them to be these sort of cut-out 2D, wearing a blue blazer and a flag pin kind mm-hmm. of caricatures of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that's who the real Hillary is, and then I, ultimately we have to decide whether that's the kind of person we want to have as our first woman president. Fair game. That brings me to the word fair game in itself. What is fair game to you about Hillary Clinton? I think, I think what is fair game to talk about for Hillary Clinton is what is just her. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously, there have been many discussions recently about, now that Bill Clinton is on the campaign trail, whether it's, quote-unquote, fair game to bring up his personal past and hold it against her. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning, and there, and there are women in the book who say they, yeah. for the very longest time, could not forgive her right. for, leaving, for not leaving him and it being about personal ambition. And I, I think it's not fair game to somehow hold her responsible for his personal actions, just mm-hmm. as I think if the shoe were on the other foot, we would not say that if she had had an affair and he was now running for president, that somehow we would hold that against him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. O- other than that, I, I think what's fair game, as with any politician, is you know what, what are their positions, what are their views, what are, if they have votes, what are their votes, what have their actions been in the past, um, how do their personal lives and experiences inform those decisions, and how do we feel about that? So just as I think, and I think that goes for all of the candidates, and so I'll be interested to see as, as people are saying, oh, no, we think it's fair game to talk about Bill Clinton, will Donald Trump think it's fair game to talk about his three marriages? <laughs> so true. Where can someone go to buy the book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, the book is in bookstores, but it's also online at Amazon and IndieBound. Um, if they want to find out more about me and the book, they can go to joannebamberger.com, which t- has some pages that talks about the book and also has a full list of uh, the book tour that's upcoming. And uh, then they can also find my writing and the writing of many other great women at The Broadside, which is the broad, www.the-broad-side.com. Wonderful. What is next for you? Well, my my daughter tells me my next book has to be, it should all be you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time for you to write your own book. So I'm, I'm investigating a few ideas. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I would really like to explore and write about are uh, women political dynasties. We've had so mm-hmm. much talk in this campaign about the Bushes and the Clintons, yeah. but what about other younger women who are out there who are creating their own political dynasties and what would that mean what would what would that look like for our country and how would that impact how our country is run if we had dynasties of women similar to the bushes so that's one idea i'm kicking around and i have some other ideas too and i, I promised her my next book would would be all me writing it and, <laughs> and not an anthology that's a wonderful idea. I like the fact that we can track the Generation Y and how they are building themselves up in layers to position themselves, whether it's 5, 10, 15 years from now, to be the next president of the United States. And I think it will look very different than, mm-hmm. than the kind of leadership that we're seeing today. I, I think it's a very exciting prospect mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. about what that kind of leadership will look like. So true. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? So, Mike, I think that always changes over the years, but my mm-hmm. my current recipe for living um, is two things that really have to do with my daughter who who just turned 16 and sort of what I hope she will be in the future, and that is uh, not to be afraid to be honest with yourself as you think about the things you like and that you don't like or people you like or people you don't like, but just be honest with yourself and own that. And not to pass along any of my own personal baggage to my daughter to the extent that I can mm-hmm. keep myself from doing that, which sort of goes back to the first point. I think when you get to a certain age, um, you live your life very differently than you did when you were younger. And if you had some of that knowledge, it would be different. And I think some of that knowledge comes from just being honest with yourself about what you do like and don't like. That's wonderful. It's so true. And that's a wonderful recipe. Well, Joanne, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. It's been a true pleasure to have you on the air with me. Thank you again, and have a blessed day. And happy 2016 to you and your loved ones. 
Thank you. You too. To all our listeners, thank you for being with us. Please join me next Tuesday morning. My guest will be Nancy Gauthier. She is a singer, songwriter, and an award-winning children's book author. Nancy and I will be discussing tips on teaching and empowering children with the right message about friendship, science, and living healthy. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed week, and Happy New Year. Joanne, thank you again. Have a nice day. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.